Love listening to our podcast? Join veteran strategist Bob Schrum and Mike Murphy, along with others at the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future and the Bully Pulpit, formerly called Election R&D, for fun conversations that advance civil dialogue and practical politics. When President Theodore Roosevelt coined the phrase bully pulpit, bully meant wonderful, and Roosevelt, according to the Oxford Dictionary, was envisioning an outstanding opportunity to speak out on any issue. Hear from famous people who've known successes and setbacks, whether they worked for Donald Trump or Barack Obama, George W. Bush or Bill Clinton, the Republican Party or the Democratic Party. The conversations go behind the curtain with elected officials, campaign staff, journalists, academics, pundits, and political operatives. Every exchange is guided by standards central to the center's mission. Respect each other and respect the truth. Opponents are adversaries, not enemies. And if you lose, don't burn down the stadium. To listen, search The Bully Pulpit on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we question our political institutions, see what's working, see what's not working, and how to fix them. I am Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America. And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the Department of Political Science at Clemson University. Today we have a very special guest, Sophia Hordan Wallace, who is an associate professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Washington, and she is an expert on immigration politics and policy, and she's a co-author of a 2020 book, Walls, Cages, and Family Separation, Race and Immigration Policy in the Trump Era. So welcome to the show, Sophia. Thank you, Leanne James, for having me on. I'm really excited about this conversation because immigration is such a central issue in our politics. And I, I think it's a really confusing issue for a lot of people. And so I, I want to start by trying to work our way through the thicket of, of what is immigration policy and what is immigration politics. And, and your work focuses on a lot of public opinion around immigration. But I think it's it's can Fusing because immigration is not really one thing. I mean, there, there's legal versus illegal immigration. You know, there, there's children who, who came here illegally versus their parents. There's skilled immigration and unskilled immigration. There's family immigration. And, and then there's refugees who, who are a, a special category of immigrants. There are also a lot of questions about border security. And, and as you talk about in your book, the symbolic building of the wall. And you know, we could, of course, go on. But what I'm hoping is you can kind of talk us through where public opinion is on, on these different aspects of, of immigration policy and, and kind of add a little bit of, of nuance to, to what we mean when we talk about immigration policy and politics. Yeah, I'm happy to. So let me just start and back up with the question of what are, what is immigration politics and policy? And I think it's a really wide range of things. And I think one thing that is really confusing is there are things that can only happen at the federal level. And then there are things that can happen at the state level as well as the national level. And it really encompasses a wide range of policies, many of which actually never, we don't ask public opinion questions about, and it never even reaches the media because there's all these bureaucratic elements of immigration policy in terms of the courts, how much money we allocate to them, kind of what's happening in the backlog on immigration processing, et cetera. 
there's a bunch of policies that relate to whether individuals have the right to stay in the country and for how long. So that could include all kinds of visas, things like permanent residency, talking about the diversity lottery, we're talking about pathways to citizenship for undocumented immigrants. So there's a lot of things. And then there's a lot of enforcement policies that really range from a lot of different things, whether that's internal enforcement, and we're talking about what happens inside the United States away from the southern border versus policies that are aimed specifically at the southern border. So it's a really wide um, host of policies. But the one key difference when we talk about this and the thing we actually poll the most on is what do people think in particular about immigrants in general, but also some type of pathway to citizenship? We actually don't ask enough questions on polls about public attitudes on different elements of policy. And that may be because we don't actually talk about all the nuances of immigration policy. But what we do see in public opinion data, and this is pretty consistent, is there's actually lots of support for pathway to citizenship, particularly amongst certain groups of immigrants. And that cuts across party lines. And so when I talk about this, people are often surprised because we talk about this as a very polarizing issue, which it is very controversial and has increased in saliency, particularly in the last 10 years across the national public, as opposed to just specific segments of the electorate and population. But there's actually a lot of support for pathway to citizenship. And part of that is because we do have a population of over 11 undocumented immigrants. And there is this real sort of practical question is, what happens if we don't actually address that population and offer a solution? And in particular, we find the most public support for a pathway to citizenship for people who were brought as children to the United States. And that particular segment of the policy shares widespread support across Republicans and Democrats, where there is really significant breakdown in public opinion is on, in particular, some elements of enforcement policy. So for example, attitudes towards the border wall are really divided across party, across ideology, with Democrats having very low levels of support for that particular policy, and that being a very popular policy amongst Republicans. But there are other areas of policy where there's actually a lot of agreement on enforcement. For example, child detention, detaining children in immigrant detention facilities is a very unpopular policy across most segments of the population, including people who very strongly identify as Republicans. There's only a small segment of the population that actually supports that policy. So there are some areas where there's total polarization, some where there's actually agreement on things that we wouldn't expect. And then there's areas that are sort of mixed. So we show in, in our book that on family separation, for example, whether you should separate immigrant parents from children upon entry to the United States, there is uniform, more or less, not support for that policy by Democrats, but amongst Republicans, about half support it and half don't. And so I think a lot of what we hear is that everything is polarized and it's either one group totally in support or against. But what we have found in our own research and in opinion polls for quite a long time is there's actually some things that we do agree on and there's some things that are mixed even within people of the same party in terms of support and opposition. Thanks again for coming on. Again, I want to echo Lee here. I think this is a really timely topic, a really important topic, and it's one that the American people 
uh, are particularly interested in, even as you say they can't uh, agree on it and what they want to do um, necessarily. And I think we're going to get to Congress a little bit later um, in our political institutions and their ability to to tackle this issue. But in the meantime, I really want to pick up where you just left off. You know, we have lots of different people and we have lots of different opinions about immigration policy in what it should or should not be. And what I'm really interested in is where do these opinions come from? Is it based on party? Is it based on kind of geographic uh, location or, or occupation, uh, for instance? We saw a, a number of Hispanic voters that supported Trump. And we can also see, does it, does it even relate to other issues, right? So during the 2012 election, if I can remember off the top of my head, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but if I remember, I think it was a, a situation where older Hispanics who happened to be um, either married or higher income brackets uh, tended to, to break towards Republicans and younger Hispanics that were in lower income brackets those two kind of cleavages being age and income broke towards uh, uh, Democrats. And so is it, you know, where where are these policies in the positions that people have on these policies coming from? What is determinative of their policy positions? Or do we not know that kind of level of detail and information? So I do think that we do know a lot about that. And I think one of the biggest changes in immigration opinions over time is that the issue used to not be very salient, actually, to very many segments of the of the population. It used to be a really important issue specifically for the Latino community, and it wasn't a widespread issue. It had not risen in saliency. And so I want to make a distinction that some of the difference we see in opinion today is actually maps on to when immigration as an issue became much more salient. And we know that it became a lot more salient, in particular, as we move towards the mid-2000s or really kind of post-2010 with the rise of the Tea Party. And there definitely became a much wider interest in immigration across both the ideological spectrum, but across racial and ethnic groups, where more and more individuals were saying this was an important issue. So that gave us a lot of data then about what is explaining difference in opinion then, because people actually had stronger opinions on the issue and kind of in that period. And so you're correct that there is some difference for sure um, amongst Latinos on immigration, thinking about it. Um, one of the biggest cleavages we see today is actually less so about um, age and is really about uh, religious identification. So we know that Latinos who are evangelicals hold much more conservative viewpoints on immigration on average than other Latino respondents. Um, and, and I think that there's a lot of work actually to be done in Latino politics in understanding essentially Latino evangelical voting behavior and public opinion. And there's been a shift in how that population in the United States has increasingly become evangelical as opposed to identifying as Catholics. And it's a really important shift to understanding conservative Latino opinions. Um, and I don't think we have enough research on that question yet to fully understand that other than we know that they are more conservative on a lot of issues, immigration being one of them. And it pretty much maps onto how we understand evangelical opinions more broadly and evangelical voting behavior. And so we, we need to study that more to better understand that. I think if we're talking about what explains differences amongst the white public on immigration, one of the kind of debates is, right, whether demography is the kind of key predictor. And here, this could be where you live, 
what are the racial and ethnic demographics? How much does that predict that? And there are scholars who, and people in the public who might assume, well, if you live really close to the U.S. southern border, then you may actually be more supportive of restrictive policies. And actually, a lot of the research hasn't borne that out. We've actually found that the farther you are away in Texas, in particular from the border, um, you're actually more likely to have conservative attitudes. And so I think some of the stuff on demography, that the results are mixed um, in terms of what it is. And so we have focused our research in our book, thinking about demographic threat, which is less about the actual demographics of where you live and whether you're concerned about demographic changes in the public. So that's really tapping something different. Likewise, we look at how does cultural threat, concerns about a changing American culture, drive opinions on immigration? And what we found in our book was that both concerns about cultural threat that is posed from Latino immigrants in particular, but also demographic changes to the U.S., that those two things actually were pretty strongly related to more restrictive opinions. So you would be more supportive of Trump's immigration policies than individuals even individuals who were conservative and individuals who were Republicans who much had much lower levels of cultural and demographic threat that they expressed. So I think that one of the interventions of our book is to really think about how do racial attitudes actually influence attitudes on immigration. That's all super fascinating, especially the point about evangelicals. So I want to move our conversation towards the kind of electoral consequences and uses of immigration politics. And I wonder, like, whatever happened to the caravan? Like, it seemed to be about to to hit the US in November 2018. And then it just vanished. From my perspective, it was just kind of this fabricated issue that Republicans focused on, because they thought amplifying the threat of, of immigration was good politics. And 2018. And I I think that that somewhat evolved into Trump's law and order message in 2020. But I haven't heard as much on that from Republicans as we kind of enter the 2022 cycle. Feels like it's been displaced by critical race theory, masking schools. So I'm curious how you see the evolution of immigration politics over the last few elections and what you think we might be likely to see as we get closer to the to the November elections. Yeah, so returning back to this rise in saliency, I think that's super connected to how important immigration became as a device for mobilizing people in the electorate. So as that became a way to mobilize some voters that were on the right, I think that we saw certain types of messages appear. Now, I want to be clear that some of what has happened in the contemporary era, if we're thinking about 2016 election, 2018, sometimes people would like to frame that as specifically a Trump only thing. And, you know, I think that the rise of using threat narratives and myths, which is what we talk about it in the sort of immigration literature, those have actually been around a long time. What has changed is how widespread belief in those myths are and stereotypes and how present they become in electoral campaigns and how much elected officials might repeat them. A lot of things around immigration threat narratives used to be repeated by very few elected members of Congress. And it, as it became sort of more normalized at a larger proportion, and I think that really tracks on to asymmetric polarization, I think that this became more and more common. And, you know, to some extent, it did work to mobilize certain voters, particularly for Trump. 
And I think that there, that became attractive. Now, I think clearly there was on the other side um, questions around whether it could mobilize Democratic voters um, who were against those policies, whether that was sufficient. And I think the evidence is mixed on whether it actually produced mass mobilization that people hope. As far as what would happen in the future, you know, I think, as you point out, a lot of major crises have been happening recently. If we're thinking about coronavirus, we're thinking now about all the impacts of it. We're talking about the summer 2020 protests, thinking now about Ukraine. So a lot of things have sort of, I think, taken up the political space, but you still see little markers of how immigration emerges. So I've seen, for example, some discussion of, well, why are we sending money to Ukraine, for example, when you could be directing this money towards the southern border? Why are you, you know, allowing certain refugees into the United States, but this isn't how you treated Latino immigrants? So there are different connections that are being made in this contemporary moment. And, you know, I don't think this issue is going to disappear. And it's clear that it worked as a way to mobilize certain voters, particularly on the right. So it's not going to disappear there. And I think it's not going to disappear on on the left because ultimately Biden, you know, said that he was going to do a lot of different types of policies that were not just rollbacks of Trump policies, but he was going to fix the immigration system and he was going to get a path to citizenship. That hasn't happened. And so there's going to be pressure on the left from immigration rights activists and voters to account for that and what is going to happen, right? And I'm we're only one year into this presidency, but certainly that's something that I know is a really active point of discussion on the left. Picking up on this angle, I think it's really interesting because the way at least it strikes me is that when we talk about immigration, we talk about it in a frame that seeks to, and when I say we, I think the kind of general conventional opinion, the received opinion, um, public opinion, and the kind of the, you know, obviously when public opinion, the word comes on the, the political scene in the French Revolution, it's referring to the kind of educated elite type of public opinion, not the great unwashed masses necessarily. But I think in that sense, the view of immigration policy is anything against pathways to citizenship, anything against more liberalized reform, anything against or in favor of security type um, immigration policy walls, for instance, those types of policies, that that is almost like an illegitimate policy position, that it's that it's all about a threat narrative um, in, in your words. And I'm not saying that you have this view, but it's seen as almost illegitimate, implicitly so. Whereas a nation's ability to to control its borders, and and again, it can do so in a bad way or a good way, depending on one's point of view. Obviously, is something that is completely within the realm of legitimate public policy. So, I think that's a really interesting concept. What fascinates me about the politics of immigration reform right now is that both parties are divided on it. I think the public has changed significantly, as you've said, on this issue from say like the early and mid two thousands. But one of the things that came out of the the 2007 debate in the Senate that we can get to in a little bit is that both parties are really divided on this policy, not so much at the elite level, but at the rank and file level. It's remarkable. And this policy became so toxic that no one would go near it inside of Congress for a very long time, for five, six, seven years in both parties. But what's interesting, though, is that unlike in the past, where you know, and I'm thinking back to say like the second party system and, and the Whigs and the Jacksonian Democrats and the issue of slavery that divided both parties, 
trade policy that divided both parties. Usually when parties are divided on issues internally, historically, they typically try not to talk about them and they only deal with them when they come up and they try to compromise and get them away as quickly as possible. But what's fascinating to me about immigration is that the Republican Party is divided in a major way on immigration policy. The, De uh, the Democratic Party is divided on immigration policy, but yet they both talk about them in elections. They both talk about immigration policy in elections like ad nauseum as a way to almost mobilize voters. But yet they do so with the understanding, maybe subconsciously or consciously, that their ability to tackle that policy and pass it through government, not just in the House where you can control the debate a little bit more easily, but throughout government overall is severely limited. I mean, and, and what do you make of that? I mean, why are we, why do we have our parties and our candidates running on and talking about this issue in such a way, whereas they don't actually, there's no real, it seems to me, ability on their part to actually tackle it or even a willingness to even try to tackle it in that matter. So let me just say this. I think that, you know, so, some of what you said I agree with and some I some I don't. And so let me let me start with what I agree with, which is that I do think the Republican Party is very divided on immigration. I think that there is a public narrative that all Republicans and all Republican elites hold one position on immigration where they want nothing to move forward and anything that we would call progressive that extends rights. I don't think that's actually true. And I don't in my own research analyzing the congressional record. That's actually not true. There are lots of statements by Republicans in support of a number of policies that Democrats are in support of. Um, and that has become less common but um, in recent years, but is still evident. And just recently, um, a GOP member introduced a piece of legislation that would offer a pathway to citizenship. Um, Representative Salazar did. So I think that there are there is definitely divides on the GOP side. And I'm happy to come back to talk about what that means about possibility for reform. I think Democrats are divided, but in a much less fundamental way. They're sort of divided about what are the means from which to achieve the objectives and how far to go. Um, but I think actually most of Democratic elites and even amongst the public, I actually think there's a fair amount of agreement on a lot of policies. I think um, the kind of most progressive policy aims, I don't think are necessarily um, shared in the widespread left public, even though I particularly agree with many aspects of them, I don't think they're shared amongst all democratic elites either. And so I think that's where you get into conflict in that caucus, in particular in Congress, is around kind of the extent, but there's largely agreement on what the goals are versus I think on the right in the GOP, there's actually really different ideas about what you hope immigration policies achieve. As far as why groups talk about them so much if they're sort of divided. I think part of that is because it is particularly effective on the right in mobilizing, particularly at the primary level. And so one thing we haven't discussed is when you have more ideologically extreme voters in primaries, certain issues may resonate very strongly with them. I think immigration is that type of issue on the right it's not clear to me it does the same thing in democratic primaries, but I think that actually the role it plays in mobilizing a very specific segment of Republican voters in the primary and then subsequently in the general, it's actually a key part of understanding why we can't reach agreement in Congress, because I actually think there are a number of ways that Democratic and Republican um, members of Congress actually agree on a lot of different parts 
of immigration policy, but then they're constrained by what they what they think will be the electoral consequences and whether they will be primaried, for example. And now in kind of the post-Trump era, what will be former President Trump's response um, and his potential support for a primary challenger if they were to move forward on that? So I think that complicates it. So I think there's a lot of different reasons why it becomes constrained. And I think the other thing that is really complicated about this is just like how there's this threat narrative that immigration is out of control when in actuality, under both Democratic and Republican presidents, if we look at funding for CBP and ICE, it's only gone in one direction, which is increases, right? Likewise, there's this narrative that Democratic presidents are weak on immigration enforcement, when in actuality, they've been really critiqued by the progressive left forever about being too pro-enforcement because of, again, these allocations. And we know that even though the deporter-in-chief label was created for Bush, that label then got turned onto former President Obama. And so there's many ways in which the kind of narrative about immigration doesn't correspond with what has actually happened. Likewise, some policies that happened under Trump versions of them happened under democratic administrations as well. And then we talk about that in the book. They weren't the same manifestations, but it it is clear that both Democrats and Republicans have endorsed and enacted policies that I would not describe as progressive left policies. I would describe them as restrictive policies. To answer your question about is any policy that's restrictive not acceptable to talk about, One of the things we found really interesting in our book was when we tried to tease out, well, what do Republicans and conservatives think about the wall? Do they think it will be effective? One thing that was really stunning to us is that in asking respondents, would this be effective in slowing undocumented immigration? Would it be effective in slowing drugs moving across the border? Would this be effective in terms of terrorism, which are three reasons that are often stated for why we should have a wall? We actually didn't find that lots of Republicans or conservatives felt that it would be effective, but yet they still really supported the wall, which led us to conclude the wall is really a symbol for something else. It's less about whether it actually works. So all of that is incredibly valuable as insights into how we talk about immigration, how we think about immigration, the politics of immigration. And you know, if I'm listening to you correctly, what I'm hearing you say is that there's this sort of narrative of the crisis of immigration, of the conflict over immigration that is kind of separate from the actual policymaking, particularly a, a, in the administrative branch around immigration, that there, there's these sort of caricatures and stereotypes that are really different from what's actually happening. I just want to make sure that, that that's a fair characterization before I ask my next question. Yes, I agree with oh, that. Okay, great. So the the other thing that you said is is that there's actually on the policy level a potential fair amount of of agreement. So I I would love to kind of get your take on what you think that grand bargain could look like and then what it would take politically to actually get it passed into law. Yeah, so I think James brought up a really important point when he said that there was this period where kind of not much was happening on immigration. And I think part of what happened was there were different ideas on the left about whether we should pursue comprehensive immigration reform, so CIR for short, or whether piecemeal legislation was legitimate. 
And there was a lot of debate that it's so hard to get anything passed. Why should we settle for piecemeal legislation? We should try to pass comprehensive immigration reform, especially since both amongst the elites and the public, there is agreement that the, the system is broken and needs to be reformed. So we should try to aim for something bigger. The problem is with CIR, it's much harder to come to agreement on all elements and all components. And I think that um, one of the really biggest constraints now is whether we can actually have agreement if now we don't agree on basic facts on immigration. So it used to be that debate in Congress, there were pretty similar languages and views about immigrants, about their contributions, about the role of immigrants in our economy and in our communities and how beneficial in various ways immigrants were. And there was also a lot more agreement on enforcement elements. Now, there is kind of a fracture that I think came forward as immigration became more salient and started to play this role, mobilizing certain elements of the electorate where the myths became really dominant. And now I think if we think about what negotiation scholars have told us, when you can't agree on facts, it becomes hard to reach agreement because then you're not just modifying what you think is the solution, you actually don't even agree on what's the problem and whether you can describe the details the same. And so I think that there are some areas where there is agreement that maybe if it was piecemeal might happen. So for example, I think there's a lot of agreement and there has been agreement for more than 20 years on some version of the DREAM Act in which there has been support by Republicans and conservatives. If you look at how it was debated, you know, Paul Ryan spoke about it in similar ways to Democrats at that time. Now, whether they would do it because of electoral consequences is a separate thing. That's something that the GOP caucus has to sort out with each other. But I think many members of Congress actually would support that legislation. Likewise, I think you could get support on agreement to fix the court system and immigration. There's a giant backlog. They need more money. So I think that they're there are kind of parts of the issue. There are other parts that I think are going to be really complicated. And I think if an enforcement provision gets attached where there has to be a further increase in funding, I think it's going to be hard with Democrats. And I think it's going to be hard because, again, there's no acknowledgement that Democrats have also supported lots of money that's allocated to CVP and ICE, much to the chagrin of the progressive left and much to the chagrin of, of immigrant rights activists. In fact, the new budget proposal included just that. And immediately immigrant rights groups, organizations were really unhappy about it. But there has to be some acknowledgement about the positions people actually have taken and what they've done in order to reach agreement. And right now, we're not really in a stage on enforcement where we can have that. And so I think that if you start including enforcement elements, it's going to break down. So I'm really interested in the inability to tackle immigration reform and the unwillingness to. And, you know, I, I do, I disagree on the facts issue because what Congress is about is negotiating the non-negotiable. It's about, is about negotiating issues that you don't agree on. That's what negotiation is all about. For instance, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, you had one side who did not agree with this set of facts that the other side had, but yet they were still able to pass 
that legislation. How? Why? Because they basically tried to do it. And this is where, you know, the House can pass immigration reform precisely because of the agenda control of the majority party. They have an easier time of, of precluding divisive issues from the left, from the right, from any side and disrupting the bill that they've negotiated behind closed doors or somewhere else in committee and then putting it on the floor and passing it. It doesn't pass the Senate because the Senate's unwilling to have a debate on immigration reform. And in 2007, one of the reasons why immigration uh, reform became toxic was because there is a bill that had the support of both sides of the aisle and the elite level, had the support of the president, and it looked like it was going to pass the Senate and it looked like it was going to pass the House. And it ultimately, over a two-week time period, didn't pass. It fell apart. And the opponents of that bill swung 20 votes their way, precisely because the American people weren't for it. Now, I don't think that's the case now. I think the American people have probably changed based on what you've said and in, in your research and others on public opinion. But the Senate is still unwilling to have those freewheeling debates. And I think as long as that's the case, it appears to me that you can't pass really big controversial legislation that people disagree on if you're not willing to actually disagree on it, to have votes on it, to allow amendments on it, and then to ultimately pass whatever comes out. And as long as that's the case, it seems to me that nothing is going to pass. Am I missing something here or... Or is that something that you also agree with? Or do you think that we should be able to negotiate this bill behind closed doors, get something that everybody agrees on and put it on the floor and pass it? When in reality, I can't think of a time when that's happened. The 1986 immigration bill was not done in that manner. It was it was a, a much more open, deliberative process. The immigration bills throughout American history that have been more restrictive and less restrictive have always been much more controversial. And they've passed them through a deliberative process where they haven't tried to keep people out of the debate. Um, but why is this time so different? And why should we be able to pass a bill that behind closed doors when everybody doesn't agree on it? So I think in all congressional negotiations, there is some amount of negotiations that happens behind doors. But I do agree with you that a deliberative process would be good. But this is going back to my position about what would be the public consequences. I think there are people who do not want to have to debate any bill at length and take a position publicly. They worry about those consequences, both in terms of their own constituents, but also thinking about electoral consequences, going back to my argument about primaries. And I think that while it is true that there is a segment of the population that would not support a large number of immigration um, policy options. I actually think that there's a lot more agreement than people realize. And I think that it is possible. The question is whether you let a small segment of the electorate basically cut off the possibility. So should elites be so fearful of that small group that then they cannot, they don't want to debate it. They don't want to go on the record. They don't want to talk about it. And I think that they should. And I think that not addressing this public policy, it continues to occupy a tremendous amount of space because again, going back to this idea, the undocumented population in the United States, it's not going to disappear. And while undocumented immigration is one element of immigration policy, it's the one that we fight over the most um, in addition to it, and it's related to enforcement. And there is really no purpose in keeping people in the shadows unless your point 
is to keep them in a marginalized position. And I think most people would agree that's not really a sustainable position. Where we disagree is what exactly to do, right? And I think that it is important to have this debate. It is important to move forward. And I think there are electoral consequences to both parties if they don't, both Democrats in terms of potentially being blamed for not addressing this issue. And if the GOP would like to, in particular, increase GOP support amongst Latinos, I think that that will increasingly be an important thing that is is required to kind of moderate that position. And while there has been a lot of talk about increased Latino support in this last election, it's actually been the case that since the 60s, about one third of Latinos have voted for the Republican candidate and two thirds for Democrats. And, And Republicans actually haven't made overall aggregate increases in that support, I think they could if they moderated on this particular issue and kind of went back to prior positions that were more like either Bush or Reagan. Because again, people forget 1986, there was a pathway to citizenship for 3 million people. And that happened, it was bipartisan, but it happened under Republican president. So that's how far the party has shifted. So we know agreement is possible. The question is whether the GOP would like that to happen and whether Democrats are willing to come to agreement on something that might not be their most ideal, but is going to move different elements of the policy forward or whether stagnation is actually going to be accepted. I'm going to bring this conversation to a close. And I think this has really been a fascinating conversation. And it's illustrated a few things to me. One is, I think, somewhat surprising, I think, to a lot of people is that there is actually a a fair amount of potential agreement on what an immigration deal could look like. Um, At the same time, I feel like there's tremendous public misinformation, perhaps a a lot of it willful on the the behalf of of political elites and, and the media to some extent in not accurately describing the nature of our immigration policy and enforcement. And so there's this, I think, as with a lot of issues, there's sort of this false divide that is being created and these political pressures that make it very hard for Republicans and Democrats to come together to work out a deal. So you know, I think this has been a tremendously illustrative case study of a, of an incredibly important problem that, that touches on the lives of so many Americans in which there really is a potential solution, but our political institutions are, are just so <laughs> messed up that the chances of us actually coming to that solution are pretty much nil any time in the, in the, in the near future. So thank you, Sophia, for helping us to, to think through this, this issue. And this has been another episode of Politics in Question. Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. This show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute, and our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group.